Welcome to What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad. On the show, we delve into people's life journeys from the point of view of twists and turns, shifts and pivots. We've all had them. Some are more visible than others and make us stop in our tracks and perhaps make a course correction. Others only come into focus with hindsight when we look into the rear view mirror and realize that a particular moment was pivotal in our lives. This is what forms the foundation of what I did next. Today I'm joined by Omnea Abdelbar. Omnea is an architect and a specialist in cultural heritage conservation, working between Cairo and London. She now divides her time between the Egyptian Heritage Rescue Foundation, EHRF, and the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Most recently, Omnea was one of four co-curators of the Islamic Art Biennale in Jeddah, which runs until April of this year. Omnea's career has been instinct-driven, and like many of us, benefited from a bit of happenstance and being in the right place at the right time. Many of us growing up in the Middle East are used to coexisting with spaces and artifacts that hark back to centuries of history. We often take them for granted, see them as part of our daily lives, and are unaware of the power and magic they hold over us. Omnea is one of the rare ones who actually stopped, looked, listened, and began her quest to restore and maintain these treasures for future generations. This is not just an Egyptian story, but a regional one. And Omnea shares her thoughts on the effort that goes into maintaining our historical sites, including raising funds from across the region's benefactors and institutions. My conversation with Omnea is a reminder that cultural heritage is as important to a nation's foundation and economy as tangible industries like manufacturing or oil. We kick off our conversation with my favorite icebreaker question. If Omnea could invite anyone to her fantasy dinner party, who would be around her table? There's so many people I'd love to invite, but I think I've always been someone who's been curious about how things unfolded and about our past history. And it looks like I would like to invite some historic figures to have chats with, to understand things, to feel, especially about my city, Cairo, how it looked like. Perhaps there'll be all people who lived and came through here. Um, uh, funny enough, I want to start with a, a Mamluk Sultan, Kite Bay, because I'm, I have placed my office in one of his former houses in Darb al-Ahmar. And Kite Bay is such an amazing figure. And I feel that he really, really loved uh, the city and the country. And he governed Egypt in the late 15th century. I also think because he's someone who had this great affinity for arts and craft, I would like to, you know, be able to sit next to him and question him about this. But there's also another figure I'm fond of in our modern history, and that's the Prince Muhammad Ali Tawfiq. Um, because ever since I was a kid, my father used to take me to Manial Palace, and I love the place. But then when I started doing what I'm doing, being in cultural heritage, I was very touched by the place because the place give credit to the people who made it, to the makers. And Prince Muhammad Ali uh, has placed the name of every single builder or master builder, master craftsman who worked with him at the entrance of his mosque. I didn't know that. Yes. That's amazing. The next time you go, look for this beautiful marble panel. And he, uh, I think there's like nine of these names. And I felt that being living in these times at the turn of the 20th century with all the movements of arts and craft happening, especially uh, uh, not just in Europe, but also in Egypt, would have been interesting to understand what a... Um, someone from the Egyptian royal family, why was he interested to bring back this Islamic heritage, especially that we were very much, even us as a society, very much looking to the West, looking to Paris and to Italy, uh, you know, Milan and, and London, and very much of Westernized uh, community more than a tr 
a traditional one. Um, and perhaps this is why we've somehow lost a lot of, of our links with our uh, past heritage in a way. Because I always I also think about outfits. What would people be wearing in this dinner? And I am throughout my years working in cultural heritage, I've collected my own small collection of, you know, traditional costumes. And I even wear them. And people are always surprised when I do that because they can't realize that this is just simply a galabaya. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just done nicely yeah. and it is the in the traditional cuts. Yeah. I try not to wear things that have been played um, or redesigned. Or modernized. I try to go to the authentic ones because uh, as someone mentioned it to me before, you work on cultural heritage, you have to be true to that. Interesting. Um, I think these two personalities have always, um, I came across them through my work a lot. And it will be just an interesting conversation to have. But there's also a lot of women and I, I'm very, very lucky to have uh, so many interesting and and um, very strong uh, women in my own circles. One uh, personality I would say that it would be in the same spirit of these two would be Azza Fahmi, because we talk a lot about craft and we talk a lot about Egypt and this heritage that we are uh, coming from. And I think I would pick her as a personality because she would enjoy the their company very and much. And is she a friend of yours? She's a very, yeah, very close yeah. friend. Her daughters were on the show. Yes, I saw that. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And they obviously look up to her as a massive role model. You know, yeah. we're like we're a group of um, of uh, women, a bit of my age in our forties, yeah. and uh, we we're very close and good friends mm. with Azza. I feel like um, she's uh, not just a mentor, but she's someone. It's very rare to find someone who encourages you and who not just puts you on the right track, but uh, who would sit with you, criticize you, give you um, constructive, constructive criticism advice. in yeah. it. Um, in Egypt, people tend to just tell you how great you are, maybe, yeah, <laughs> or how terrible you are. But when you sit with someone who who takes from her time, and she's a very busy woman as well, and that's why I really enjoy so mm. much our conversations. She's also, I think, someone who transcends age. And, totally. and there are people like that who have friends of all ages. Totally. Yeah. And she's always eager to learn and yeah. to and to hear things. I mean, she would not take the, uh, uh, the information lightly. She would tell me, no, 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 explain to me exactly how this is done. Mm. And I love that. That's her. amazing. Yeah. So I think these would be the three personalities I would So think. you would choose a, a small dinner, which is interesting in itself, because you obviously want the conversation to be a bit more, with a bit more depth. Totally, because these three personalities in my opinion, have been influential and um, very much uh, groundbreaking uh, in their time. Azza, Azza has reinvented uh, how we are looking at our traditional heritage today. Uh, the same with Prince Muhammad Ali. I don't. I think he must have been criticized at the time because he adopted an Islamic style instead of what was common uh, of, uh, of of European styles in uh, at the time. And again with Kaid Bey. Kaid Bey did a huge revival at his time, and there was like I think it was there was a trend and a fashion and when you look at his period uh, when you look at arts and crafts and also the architecture they have a, a very common character mm. so i believe you know they will have lots of things to say interesting <laughs> i love that that's really fun omnia let me ask you a little bit about your childhood um your influences as you were growing up i know that you were you grew up for a long period of time in kuwait very formative years Walk me through a little bit your early uh, your early years. So my parents, they 
are always say that, that they're not at all artistic. <laughs> but I have a very artistic grandmother. And I always say I I, I, I have this love for arts and culture from, from her because my mom always said, I don't even know how to draw. But uh, as a young kid, one of my fondest memory I remember is sitting in front of a white paper and try to think, what am I going to draw now? This was like, I could stay hours and hours with myself drawing. So at least she encouraged me to do this. Uh, my father was in mechanical engineering, but he was always a very, uh, conversations with him were always very exciting. And my dad um, took us everywhere. He's the one who took me to the museum for the first time, to um, wherever we travel to, to visit uh, archeological sites. And they say that when I was three, because he was a university professor, so you know, we have this thing where you take uh, students of the last year to Lutsura Naswan. So he was assigned to take the, 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 the students that year, and he took me and my mom. And uh, they say that going to Lutsura Naswan at this age, I became fascinated with ancient Egypt, and I started looking at books and wanting to be an archaeologist. But then I changed that throughout the years. But, but I'm still very much close to the archaeological world. Of words. course. Are you an only child? Uh, no, we have, uh, they, they had also two others. But I spent my first five years on my own because they only had uh, my sister when I was five and then my brother when I was 10, but it felt a little bit like- You were alone child. at the beginning, yeah. Um, because also the, the the difference in age with my sister didn't really allow us to play together. Yeah, of <laughs> course. Lot. And we always blamed my mother for that. <laughs> <laughs> but now as adults, you're much now, closer now probably. Much yeah, now, yeah. of course, it's, it's much different. Yeah. When I was five, we went to Kuwait and for five years, so from five to 10, and, and as you were saying, it, this is was quite, um, I think it was one part of my life that has shaped uh, the rest of it because I went to the French schools and we had, we, I had friends from Lebanon, Syria, um, Tunis, uh, France, Switzerland. And it was really exciting to know that you, you get to know the world through your friends. Um, so I remember when I went back to Egypt when I was 10 and I was the only one in class who knew where the Pyrenees was, where. <laughs> and I'm like, how do you, you don't know the mountains of the Pyrenees in the south of France? Yeah. You know, stuff like that. And for a 10 year old, that's very exactly. advanced. But for me, it was like a given. Of course we know where the Pyrenees are. Anyway, so, but uh, uh, this openness to the world, and I really had very, very good teachers, um, I think is something I always step on um, and, and it gives me this comfort I am uh, in, dealing uh, through life and through work with all sorts of personalities and and uh, and uh, nationalities and one important thing is that i i love languages and so i'm i'm very good in in english and french of course and and i've learned italian when i was doing my architecture years because i thought i cannot be an architect without speaking italian of course <laughs> especially an architect working in the middle east and egypt because there were so many italian architects in egypt yes. no italian did, yeah. did help me a lot yeah but in a way, and I know a little bit of Russian, I can understand uh, Spanish. It's very rare that I am somewhere where I don't understand mm. what's happening around me. And I think for you, your line of work, it's not just the spoken word, it's the reading as well, because so many of your your work is reading texts and going through archives and, and that sort of thing. And reading it in different languages. I'm really bad in German, yeah. for example. Yeah. That's something I, even though my, my son goes to the German school. Yes. We can teach you. <laughs> but also German is an important language to use in our field. Yeah. So tell me a little bit how you uh, zoomed in and narrowed in on your, your field of study. To start with, I always knew I wanted to do something related to drawing and to history. And I remember my um, visiting my mom's cousin years when I was still in school. 
I was 14 and he's an architect. He had his own studio in Madrid and he was uh, doing a commission, um, drawing a house for a lady in Switzerland and listening to music. And I looked at him, oh, this is so nice. I would like to draw and listen to music. He said, don't do that. As, as a lifestyle, you <laughs> yeah, like exactly. it. And I said, no, I'm going to be an architect. <laughs> so Ayman really influenced my decision because I really loved that yeah. he was able to draw and yeah. to listen to music. And even though my father was in uh, Polytechnique, where you can you also have engineering and you have architecture department in engineering, but I, I wanted to go to fine arts. So you gravitated more to the artistic, the humanity side rather yes. than the technical, yes. scientific end. It was a yeah. bit of a fight, but things turned out really nice for yeah. me. Uh, my grades only allowed me to go to fine arts. <laughs> <laughs> I missed all the politics yeah, that yeah, year, yeah, so yeah. I was so glad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you studied in France? No, no, I studied in Zamalek, in Flum uh, Gemila, in, ah, in fine arts in Zamalek. Okay. I wanted to go to France, but my mother felt I'm too young for this. Right. That was back in the mid-90s. Yes. And she said, no, 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 finish your university years and then travel afterwards. So when you finished your five-year degree, yeah. did you consider setting up shop as a painter? Or did you always know that you wanted to have that as a foundation and then build on that? I did architecture. You did architecture when? In fine arts. So I didn't do uh, painting. I see, you did an architecture degree. But I did an okay. architecture degree. But it was, it was interesting because... You had other people drawing all the time. You enter the the, the premises of, of the school and you find someone who's sitting on the floor drawing um, a leaf mm. from the tree. Yeah. So it yeah. was very, very inspiring mm -hmm. environment. Um, but when I finished, I really didn't know what I would do. And I remember attending um, a lecture by Dr. F uh, Fathi Saleh, who... Uh, uh, created the CultNet, the the Na National Center for Documentation of Culture and Natural His uh, Heritage. Mm -hmm. I think this is the abbreviation. Yeah. And he was just back from Paris after finishing his post. And that was the beginning of the of the years 2000. So digitizations were, was a very new field and uh, using technology in the world of, uh, of arts and culture was very, very premature still. And he started digitizing- What year was this, Omnia? 2000. 2000. Exactly. So he started digitizing uh, a series of postcards he found in Egypt and he made a CD out of it. And it was really exciting. Mm -hmm. And I went to him afterwards and I said, so I just finished architecture school. Probably this is not what you need, but I like what you're doing. And can I come and see if I can give a hand? And he actually said, yes, come. And I worked with them for like maybe six months on natural history, natural natural heritage. Just because you saw the postcards and you liked what he was doing. I just liked what the, the, the center was working on. And I, I always have something for culture and for her, heritage and history. And he assigned me to work with Dr. Hela Barakat, who is, uh, her career is on, on she has a botanical background and she was uh, documenting um, the uh, natural um, sites in Egypt and because you it was the beginning when we were also declaring them protected zones yes what I find um, uh, curious or, 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 or impressive is that at such a young age you identified what it was you were interested in and you went and knocked on the door and said can I help <laughs> Yes. You know, that's that's unusual. I still, sometimes when I meet him today, he said, oh, I'll never forget the, yeah. the spark in your eyes yeah. when you came to speak to me. Because at that age, I remember all you want to do is just get any job. Good for you. 
it it was it was really interesting yeah. to work with them but then my father felt like i've done all these five years of architecture not using it so he he somehow wasn't happy so i went and got another job and i was um working for real estate and doing some uh, architecture modification for uh the, the the flats when they're bought which was also an interesting experience afterwards i lived a little bit in this uh, compound <laughs> but i guess it's 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 um it's a good experience because i think what's as important as knowing what you want is knowing what you don't want yes and sometimes you have to work in that in order to eliminate it yeah yeah but that was the real corporate life yeah but um wanting always to get this experience of studying abroad and because my my dad did his phd in 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 england so and i i, I he and my mom always spoke about how uh the years the five years they've spent in england were uh very exciting and very um happy years yeah totally and also challenging because you know you're trying to finish a phd so i applied to do my masters in belgium to study conservation so how did you reach the point where you had already thought to narrow your scope into conservation um that was the time i remember a friend of mine much older than me who was already living in belgium and she did this uh masters she came with the application how because we didn't have internet yeah you see yeah and she came with a copy of the application and she said omnia i think you have to go do this and she gave it to me and she said fill it and and let's see and i filled the application sent it sent it by post and i got the approval and they uh my dad immediately said even though it's it's interesting but with my father like all those years i used to share his car but it's because he refused to buy me one <laughs> but then when i said i want to go to belgium to study which was almost the same cost because like, <laughs> I, i am dual national so i wasn't allowed any grants uh so he said no no no, i paid for you and i was like well you didn't pay for my car i said no i'm investing in you yeah, that's different it's different it's different <laughs> so you had picked already uh conservation as your focus and you hadn't contemplated other avenues within the same general uh field i already knew i liked historic buildings mm. and uh, i love going to old places and if i could play a role into saving them um i was not a very bad architect either but i because i like design and i like drawing and i and but i felt why not try to bring these old places into the modern time and that's what i tried to do with my work yeah i never try to duplicate or copy but i always try to find if i'm uh, I'm fixing something. How can we fix it in a way that you can use it and utilize it in the 21st century? That's why I love doing uh, new and old. So repurposing a space for a modern usage. Yes, I really love okay. working on such things because I feel places have um, I say they have their energies and being in a place which lived and had you know, laughters and cries and fights and and celebrations i always think about all these moments that the place has lived before i ca i come to work on it and then it becomes more exciting instead of something trying something from scratch so i think you're a very romantic person and you're a very imaginative person because it's almost like you're the little girl walking into this old palace and you're imagining the life that had been led in that place yes totally right yeah my childhood years exactly have helped develop my imaginative exactly side. yeah it's super interesting 
tell me, Omneya, uh, about your experience in 2004 when you were part of the restoration project of uh, Beit al-Razaz. Of Beit al-Razaz, I feel it's like a life mission to me because I was working in Brussels at the time after finishing my master's and I was enjoying it and working in a big uh, studio house. And then uh, a friend of mine uh, told me, what are you doing in Brussels? Come back. <laughs> you're I have a job for you. You're in the wrong continent. <laughs> yeah, I have a job for you. Come and join us and work with us in Beit Razez. So that was Dr. Ala Al-Habashi who was directing the project of Beit Razez. And that was the very first time for me to go to Darbul Ahmar when I went to meet them. So I went to the Citadel, I went to Babzuela, and that's the place in between. And uh, it was a revelation. It's a beautiful courtyard house that I fell in love with. And I loved every single day of it. You know, it felt like as if I was living two different lives. Because in the morning, you're in the dust, in those, uh, 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 even the way you're wearing and everything. And then I couldn't just go see friends after work. I needed to <laughs> go change in between. And you're living in a, in a, in, in, are you working in Darb al-Ahmar, meeting people who, and seeing their lives. I've met people who have never seen the Nile, for example, and that's only 15 minutes away. What was the day-to-day -day of that work like? You were, you were, you were physically working yes. with your hands, restoring the house. Uh, not really always physically with my own hands, but I have I had a big team of yeah. work, workmen and uh, I was supervising the work. I was putting down the, the ideas and And, and was the house things. completely dilapidated yes. when you started? Yes, 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 totally. And we had to dismantle things and then reassemble them differently. And we had to uh, uh, replace parts and missing wooden windows that we needed to look for the skilled uh, man who can still do turned wood as in the past. So I've learned a lot. Yeah. I've learned yeah. a lot because this was somehow of an introduction to me Uh, to the historic city i already i wrote my masters at the time on a mosque that is not that far away but it was a in sayda zainab it's a different neighborhood than darb al-ahmar and working on Beit Razez, this is when i just realized i don't know history enough how can i take a decision about a place when i don't know its history and this is when i decided okay for my phd then maybe i should go for history and that's what i did And tell me, what was the subject of your PhD? When I was doing the restoration, what I wrote about is is how they built. You see, so I, I restored what they built. So I wanted to understand how did they start all of this? How did they pick up the land? Where did they find the, the, um, the labor? Uh, what styles did they use? Why these styles? What material? So it was a fun and a very adventurous journey. And I always felt at the beginning, how am I, go go how am I going to find any information? But the Mamluk historians were uh, very uh, productive and uh, they've left us a wealth of uh, information in the the, the sources um, uh, produced in the Mamluk period. We don't have drawings, unfortunately, but we have the monuments and they tell a lot. And your PhD was completed in how many years? Eight. Eight. <laughs> well, we had the revolution. And life got in the way. And I had a baby. So my PhD is my second child. Eight, eight. And you did that where? Uh, it was um, in France, in the south of France, but I was mainly based in Cairo because mm. my professor had yeah. a post in Egypt. And the work was here. And the, the work was here, was here. exactly. Yeah. I just went to show them my, my sure, work and sure. my defense and that's it. And do you think that in your line of work, you need a PhD to do what you're doing? Or was it something you would just you wanted to do for yourself? A PhD is really something you do for yourself because it's uh, it's a training. It's a self, uh, not dedication, what's the word for it? Uh, discipline. Discipline, yes. And I think it's about completing it, not doing it. Um, it's really the, the, 
the methodology that you learn and that you apply. And this is the only time you will have time to read as much as you want and yeah. to write uh, on things as, as you want to. So I always encourage whoever wants to do it. I tell them it's not easy. It will take a lot of your time. You will have to do lots of sacrifices. At one point, my son couldn't link me with with the beach because I was never I was never on any beach holiday. I was in the library working. Yeah, yeah. And, and when I said no, 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 now I finished. Yeah. I can, and he was I can young take at a the holiday. time. And he was a baby. Very <laughs> and he small. was a baby. Yeah. Yes, but. Uh, uh, but uh, it's 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 a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. and so whether you can do it or not, it's not easy, of, of course. But I am very very grateful for being given the the opportunity to do it because I never thought about doing a PhD. To be honest, academia for me because my father was in academia and I didn't want to go through that path because I've seen how he was like uh, not always happy about yeah. the situation in Egypt. So I was not never interested to work in the university. Uh, but then I worked on a project in Seyda Zainab with um, the Mairie de Paris. And my boss, the French lady, she took me by the hand one day, introduced me to Sylvie Denoir, who will be my professor afterwards. And she told Sylvie, Omnia needs to do, to do a PhD. See when I told you I have very important women in yes. my life? Yes. So Christian Blanco is yeah. one of them. But I love that you listen to them. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, we always laugh about it because Sylvie always says, I just didn't understand when I, you know, this woman coming to my office and saying, Omnia needs to do a PhD. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we had so much fun. Yeah. And my professor was very much instrumental for me to finish because she's a woman. She also had her son when she was doing her PhD. She understood the struggle you have to go through when when you're you're doing such important work and the sacrifices. And she was always encouraging. And I think she taught me something very, very important. She told me you all, all for herself, she said, all my life, I always felt that I wasn't doing enough to my work and I wasn't doing enough to my family. And I always lived with this guilt. So she said, my advice to you is try to live them both and don't feel guilty. And this feeling of guilt eats you. So she said, just try to balance it. Yeah. You you will never be able to make everybody happy, but, um, it's every but don't woman, live with the guilt. Exactly. It's every woman's big dilemma and it never goes away. No, it's not It never easy. goes away, yeah. <laughs> When we come back, Omneya tells us how she balances her life between London and Cairo and how she works with regional policymakers and benefactors to make the case for preserving history. That's right after this short break. Welcome back. You're listening to What I Did Next, and this is my conversation with Omneya Abdelbar. The latest sort of progression or the latest uh, big project you did was co-curating the Islamic Art Biennale in, in Jeddah. How did that come about and what has it meant for you? And before you say anything, we are recording this in the middle of February. The event was at the end of January, which I attended, and you have been recovering ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I think the audience needs to know this because when you walked into the studio today, you said how exhausted you've been because your adrenaline levels were so high for so long. Oh, totally. The sight of the Islamic Arts Biennale is so impressive and so grand. And it was a huge, huge uh, task, to be honest. But I'm very proud of the team and every one of us who worked on it because really you see you know when we say impossible mission this was an impossible mission and we still can't believe we did it and we delivered 
<laughs> I love that the the site that was chosen because I know you were all looking for different sites for a yes. while. I love that it was the Hajj terminal in Jeddah, which of course is the location for people coming to do Hajj. It's where they land and where they stay when they first arrive. And I think the symbolism is it was um, felt very much by the people attending the event, and it seemed like a perfect uh, location. Um, what did that role involve for you and how long did it take you to put it together and give me a sense of of how it all happened for you there i've been working on this project for the past two years and uh, i think coming back to the site i think the site chose us more than we chose it um we were drawn to it and uh, probably it's the amazing energies that you have as well and, and I remember, I think that when I was studying architecture, we took in theory of architecture, the site. Maybe I have a sketch of it from the 90s, but it was familiar to me because it took the Aga Khan Award in 1983. I was living in Jeddah when it was built. And I remember very, very clearly that it, when it was, I was very young, but I remember clearly the creation of that terminal was was quite groundbreaking because it was different the the look of it was so different to anything that was exactly. any, seen anywhere else. Exactly. And somehow the tented concept fit perfectly with the country. Oh, yes. So you know. It is an image. It's become a visual image. It has. So for us, even at uh, the Biennale, when we were trying to uh, prepare all the visuals, it was inevitable. Yeah. The tents are part of the of visuals you're trying. Of course. And they are everywhere. And every picture you take when you're on site is beautiful because yeah. of the of the place yeah. you're in. Yeah. Um, so this was a bit, you know, sometimes you start project and you don't know from where to start. And that was a bit like that for me, <laughs> because first of all, I didn't know anything about the Saudi institutions I would work with afterwards, and I had to go and discover them. And I didn't know anything about the collection. And Mecca and Medina for me were just a place for rituals. I did Umrah once in my life. That was my only connection. I did work for a short period of my life in Dar al-Handasa. So I had I worked on this extension of the Haram Sharif for a year or so. So I was familiar with the site, but very much from an architecture point of view. And then when we were asked to focus the first Biennale on Mecca and Medina and to try to um, to convey this feeling, I remember the very first thought I had in my mind, because we were still in the middle of the pandemic, is that I wanted people to breathe. I said, well, we go to shows and exhibitions, and sometimes you're too exhausted from what you're seeing. And I kept on saying, I really want people to come and enjoy the experience. And after so many hardship living through the pandemic, to be able to go somewhere where they can, you know. You just exhale. Yeah, where you can relax and you can have some space for your brain as well. Because life is too, too pressuring at the time. There's so much pressure everywhere. And this was one of my very first thoughts approaching this project is that we want we want the visitor to be able to, yes, to know about new things maybe and to see beautiful stuff, but to to stand still at a moment and mm, to feel, mm. you know, the inside yeah. and to feel, you know, take a breath. And how did you, uh, you were um, co-curating with three other curators. How did you divide up who was doing what? How did you find your niche within the within the program? I think it came a little bit naturally because we're so different in our background. So each one of us brought something to the table and that what made it 
so beautiful because we really completed each other. And having to work as well with two pioneers in their field, Dr. Saad al-Rashid, who is an, a Saudi archaeologist, but who was always there in every history, in every story. And that was fascinating. We go and visit places with him. And then he goes back and tells me stories from the 70s. But he also gave me a lot of hope because he's someone who was uh, championing the heritage of the kingdom for years and years and years. And for him, you know, sometimes I, I would see tears in his eyes in a way because he he's so excited that now that he, that he is in his 70s, there is this huge recognition and huge uh, uh, interest and uh, also um, uh, uh, invest in the history of uh, of the country and its heritage. And so Dr. Saad's meeting him was, mm. was really exciting and very, very informative. And also to work with Dr. Julian Raby, who uh, I, I heard so much about him because most of my friends studied with him in Oxford. And uh, and then afterwards he was in Washington with uh, the Freer. Uh, so um, he was directing uh, the museum. And and probably because of those years being uh, a professor in Oxford with uh, with Dr. Julian, it was always, whenever I had a question, he would take the time and explain it to me. And because I am a self-taught Islamic art historian, let's say, um, because my, my, all my, my uh, uh, education is around architecture, conservation, and history. But art history is something I've learned while living in London and visiting all these shows and working at the V&A as well. Um, so... But, you know, you just need to go and research and read the things. Mm. But uh, with Dr. Julian, it was amazing because he I would just ask him and I would have the yeah. all the inside outs about the yeah. thing. And then our fourth curator is Sumaya Valley, who is so much younger. <laughs> so that's why oh, it's all so exciting. We have people uh, born in the 40s, yeah. me in the 70s, and Sumaya is in the and 90s. And different perspectives, absolutely. Yeah. And Sumaya is, is, a, is a contemporary uh, person and she's an architect and... Um, uh, uh, she brought this uh, other aspect, which uh, uh, about the contemporary context for the show and um, the, the relationship with the artistic uh, uh, aspect of mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. So, which is not something I have, yeah. let's say. So that's why it was really, really exciting mm -hmm. to have this group, which I believe was quite unique yeah. to the show. And what what brought it in in the way you you saw it? Absolutely. It was an, an amazing experience. It, I attended the opening and then I went back the next morning to quietly visit each pavilion and each room and each gallery and take my time with it because it was a, there was a lot of it, lot of a lot of information. So since we're saying this, yeah. I always like to ask people what was their favorite moment. So for me, the most impressive thing was the way it was set up in terms of the the layout and the construction of the of the site because you you all you had to construct the pavilions of course. what i loved was the simplicity of the structures the fact that it was not jarring it was just very zen i felt it was very zen and with the water uh, that little uh, pond in the middle. I just felt very zen when I was walking Call around. It the secret pond. Exactly. That's what it feels like. <laughs> I felt that was uh, very, very impressive. And then there were so many different pieces of art that were 
just impressive. I love the the white toallas, the white hats, which were made of porcelain, not of fabric. Yes, exactly. And that they were dotted all around, and you could go under them and above and all around them. That was very impressive. And then, I mean, it's endless. The list is endless. I mean, there were really, really interesting things to look at, but there was a lot. So it's something I think if you're living there, you have three months to go through it. I would have probably wanted to go more than once. I think I've done a few visits yeah. uh, with uh, uh, visitors. It You can easily take five hours. I'm sure you can. But I think it's the kind of thing you shouldn't do in one go. Yes. You need to go back because you need to see it with different freshness every time. Now you spend time between the UK and Cairo um, and you started working, um, you created your own role at the VNA yes. by going in and saying, I want to help, <laughs> which I love. I mean, this seems to be the pattern of your career, Omneya. My husband always used to say, probably you were the only one on Monday so happy to go to work. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, because yeah. DNA is just—it's just, a fabulous museum. It's a fabulous yeah, thing, it's and incredible. I'm, I'm so lucky that in Cairo I'm in Beit Razez, and in London I'm at yeah. the DNA. Yeah, and even when I did the Mamluk member project, I was mainly in in London. But I never really lost uh, contact mm. with mm. Uh, with Egypt when when we moved. We moved because of my husband's work. But oh, you uh, moved to the UK because of your husband. Yes. Ah, and so this is why you then were looking for something there for yourself. Yes. I see. Okay. I want to ask you, what is your typical day like? Because you wear so many different hats. You have so many different roles. Give me a sense. If you're in Cairo, as opposed to being in London, what is a typical day for you? Yeah, the fact that I have so many hats can be confusing, even to me. I'm sure. Sometimes I I'm wake sure. up and say, what am I supposed to do today? Who do I need to work for? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so that entails that I need to structure my day and be a little bit um, organized. Um, but the good thing in a way that through being in London and Cairo, I immediately switch. So that's a good thing in, in a way. I have my habits and I have my things. Um, I, I'm a morning person. I know that I, if I need to write something, I have to do it before 10 a.m. Uh, because that's my my biggest focus would be from 6 to 10 a.m. And you're like me. Yes. And I can work afterwards, of course. But it's it's when when I need to be creative and think deeply, it's the morning. Hours. You're sharpest at that time. Yes. Yes. Before if you wake up before sunrise and then, you know, make a cup of coffee yeah. and immediately jump into mm -hmm. uh, what you want to write. And then. And then after 10, I can yeah. do other stuff and have breakfast and yeah, all of that. Yeah. But when I really need to write or focus on structuring something or taking decisions about something, I do it very early mm -hmm. in the morning. Um, and uh, I also try not to distract because we tend to be distracted easily by being pulled in meetings left and right. So I try to group them. Uh, so that I would have a day where I can, at least in the week, where I can all be in my office and be able to focus. Um, because then things accumulate and you can't uh, uh, keep track. Um, but for me, in, in a way, my work at EHRF and at the VNA, they also complete each other. It's it's about cultural heritage. It's about um, uh, Islamic uh, art and architecture. I've being at the VNA helped me a lot understand what I'm what I did in the Mamluk member project, for example, because I had access to collections. I could see things uh, uh, and 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 turn them and understand also how the the technology of making it happened. Um, so I don't see them as separate things. I see them that they they're they, complementary, they, very much complementary. Mm, mm. 
Um, yeah, but I think that's more yeah. or less. It's it's not easy, of course, that's but you, yeah. you just have you to figure it out. You just have to figure it out. So I want to end our discussion by playing devil's advocate with a few a few questions, because you know, in our part of the world, I think we have so much, um, so many problems as countries and as societies with limited resources. And I want to ask you, you know, restoration and preservation can be seen, depending on your perspective, as a luxury. How do you, obviously, I know where you fall on that, but how do you persuade policymakers or people with the ability to finance things that actually it's not a luxury? What what can be done for that? You're using the word I use because I've been telling them it is not a luxury anymore. It is really a necessity because this is part of who we are. And it might sound like a cliche, but if we don't preserve our memory, then we have nothing. And um, and especially the past decade has been very harmful and very painful because we've lost in Egypt and also in the region uh, a lot of our cultural heritage. Um, but it, there's lots of intangible that comes around it that we don't feel it, like when I was telling you the history of the Kiswa, for example. Um, so it's all tied up into uh, the same sphere, in my opinion. And when I try to convince people to invest and to um, to put, you know, to put aside some money for this, I it's it's not easy, huh? but. Um, Especially in Egypt, I still didn't work with Egyptian monies mm. until now. Mm. I'm trying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always got grants from abroad to yeah. do this. Uh, but I think us as Egyptian, we have to start thinking that we own this heritage and that we have a responsibility to preserve it for the other generation. That it's. I, I think about my son and that I want him to enjoy the 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 richness that Egypt has. And yes, it's very challenging because this is Egypt. What are you going to preserve? Everywhere you go, there's something. That's right. Even even in our modern history, there's something. But it's it's a mindset, and that's one of the things why my friends and I we lobbied in 2014, and we wrote Article 50 in the Constitution, because we needed to introduce the word turath, mm-hmm. heritage, in our own Constitution, because we didn't have. We had athar, antiquity. We didn't have turath, and turath is linked to to everything it could be the, the egyptian kitchen and cuisine it could be tales and uh, an oral history it could be you know stories from your grandmother but it it is part of this collective memory of the nation and it needs to be preserved and so this is a little bit how i try to picture it f- for people when i try to encourage them to think about investing in in, in cultural heritage I hope one day we would have a decent fund to allow Egyptians to preserve their heritage. And I'm a trustee at the Egypt Exploration Society in the in the UK. And the very first thing I uh, worked with the, the, the society with is to establish something called Heritage at Risk. And it's a small grant. It could be 1,000 British pounds or 5,000. But I told them, please allow Egyptians to submit their application in Arabic because the language barrier is big when you're trying to apply for foreign funding. 
and um, and don't make it huge a lot of money. It could be very small amount, allowing them to buy equipment, to record mm -hmm. things, to document things. And I can't tell you how successful this uh, to make this, access more widespread. This fund has been. Yeah. So I hope we can duplicate this effort, and we can have in Egypt. Uh, a grant allowing Egyptian to document the day-to-day, -day, the things mm -hmm. that are disappearing because, not just because we're not preserving them, but because of the, the style of life we're living today, that yeah. we're losing other things that felt normal to our, our parents and our grandparents, uh, but allowing someone to restore the house, a house in, I don't know, Minya, or doesn't have, it's also very much Cairo-centric or Luxor-Aswan-centric. Yeah. So to go out of these mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, uh, familiar places, and to encourage uh, the younger generation specifically to uh, document and to preserve and to reinvent yeah. as well. That this is what will give it life, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Omneya, that was amazing. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. Thank you for also giving me the time to think. We don't have much time to think it's these true. days. No, and, and sometimes it's nice to take um, a, a bigger picture and a zoom out perspective, you know? Um, and I'm I'm just thrilled that you came on the show, and I would like to. We have to keep the contact going, and we want to know what's happening with you. So we're going to check in with you at various points as well and see how you're doing. Well, I hope uh, for everyone listening to us then to come and check on me maybe in a couple of years, because what I'm hoping to embark on next is I know Beta Razes has been very very generous to me, and now this house needs needs attention and this is what i'm going to do and are you looking for funding for that i have a beginning of funding but this house is divided into two courtyard houses so there is one courtyard house restored but there's another one three times bigger mm. that is in ruin and that's a very big project but i we i really need to start yeah. Palace. it's uh, i know it's inevitable the house has been waiting and it's now or never so so we have to we're going to watch this space someday exactly come yeah hopefully we'll do come that. and visit us in we will. give me a year or two <laughs> i will i will thank you thank you so much thank you thank you for joining me today i hope you enjoyed the episode We've got a few more details about Omneya's projects and what's in her cultural inbox on our bonus episode out next week. You can get started with a free trial on our website or on Apple Podcasts with just a few clicks. What I Did Next is brought to you by ANT Media. This episode was hosted by me, Marak Fuad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. You can follow us for more on our website, Instagram, Twitter, and on LinkedIn. Just search for What I Did Next. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with a new guest. See you then.